Chapter Nineteen, Part Four, of the Worst Journey in the World, by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nineteen, Never Again, Part Four. We got back to the ship all right and coasted up the western mountains to Granite Harbour. A wonderfully interesting trip to those of us who had only seen these mountains from a distance. Gran went off to pick up a depot of geological specimens. Lily did a trawl. This was an absorbing business, though it was only one of a long and important series made during the voyages of the Terra Nova. Here were all kinds of sponges, siliceous, glass rope, tubular, and they were generally covered with mucus. Some fed on diatoms so minute that they can only be collected by centrifuge. Some have gastric juices to dissolve the siliceous skeletons of the diatoms on which they feed. They anchor themselves in the mud and pass water in and out of their bodies. Sometimes the current is stimulated by cilia. There were colonies of Gorgonacea, which share their food unselfishly, and corals are marine degenerate worms which started to live in little cells like coral, but have gone down in the world, and there were starfishes, sea urchins, brittle stars, feather stars, and sea cucumbers. The sea urchins are formed of hexagonal plates, the centre of each of which is a ball, upon which a spine works on a ball and socket joint. These spines are used for protection, and when large they can be used for locomotion. But the real means of locomotion are five double rows of water tube feet, working by suction, by which they withdraw the water inside a receptacle in the shell, thereby forming a vacuum. Starfishes do the same. We found a species of sea urchin which had such large spines that they practically formed bars. The spines were twice as long as the sea urchin and shaped just like oars, being even fluted. A lobster grows by discarding his suit, hiding and getting another, growing meanwhile. A snail or an oyster retains his original shell and adds to it in layers all the way down, increasing one edge. But our sea urchin grows by an increment of calcareous matter all round the outside of each plate. As the animal grows, the plates get bigger. There was a sea cucumber which nurses its young, having a brood cavity which is really formed out of the mouth. This is a peculiarity of a new Antarctic genus found first on the discovery. It has the most complex water tubes, which it uses as legs, and a few limy rods in its soft skin, instead of the bony calcareous plates of sea urchins and starfish. After them came the feather stars, a relic of the old crinoids which used to flourish in the Carboniferous period, examples of which can be found in the Derbyshire limestone. And there were thousands of brittle stars, like beautiful wheels, of which the hubs and spokes remained, but not the circumference. These spokes or legs are muscular, sensory, and locomotive. They differ from the starfishes in that they have no digestive glands in their legs, and from the feather stars in that they do not use their legs to waft food into their mouths. Once upon a time, they had a stalk and were anchored to a rock, and there are still very rare old stalked echinoderms living in the sea. This apparently geological thing was found by Wyville Thompson in 1868, still living in the seas to the north of Scotland, and this find started the Challenger expedition for deep-sea soundings in 1872. But the Challenger brought back little in this line. Most of the species we found were peculiar to the Antarctic. There were polychaete worms by the hundred, showing the protrusable mouth, which is shoved into the mud and then brought back into the body, and the bristles on the highly developed projections, which act as legs, by which they get about the mud. These beasts have apparently given rise to the arthropods. In a modified and later form they had taken to living in a tube, 
both for protection and because they found that they could not go through the mud, which had become too viscous for them. So they stand up in a tube and collect the sediment which is falling by means of tentacles. They spread from one locality to another by going through a plankton embryonic stage in their youth. They may be compared to the mason worms, which also build tubes. But as Lily squatted on the poop, surrounded by an inner ring of jars and tangled masses of the catch, and an outer ring of curious scientists, pseudo-scientists and seamen, no find pleased him so much as the frequent discovery of pieces of the Cephalodiscus rarus, of which even now there are but some four jars full in the world. It is as interesting as it is uncommon, for its ancestor was a link between the vertebrates and invertebrates, though no one knows what it was like. It had been a vertebrate and gone back, and now has the signs of a knotter cord in early life, and it also has gills. First found on the Graham's land side of the Antarctic continent, it has only recently been discovered in the Ross Sea, and occurs nowhere else in the world so far as is known. We left Granite Harbour on the early morning of January 23rd, and started to make our way out. Our next job was to pick up the geological specimens at Evans Coves, where Campbell and his men had wintered in the igloo, and also to leave a depot there for future explorers. We met a very heavy pack, having to return at least twelve miles and try another way. The sea has been freezing out here, which seems an extraordinary thing at this time of year. There was a thin layer of ice over the water between the flows this morning, and I feel sure that the most of these big level flows, of which we have seen several, are the remains of ice which has frozen comparatively recently. The propeller had a bad time, constantly catching up on ice. At length we were some thirty miles north of Cape Bird, making roughly towards Franklin Island. That night we made good progress in fairly open water, and we passed Franklin Island during the day. But the outlook was so bad in the evening, January 24th, that we stopped and banked fires. We lay just where we stopped until 5am on January 25th, when the ice eased up sufficiently for us to get along, and we started to make the same slow progress. Slow ahead, stop, to the engine room, bump and grind for a bit, then slow astern, stop, slow ahead again, and so on, until at 7pm, after one real big bump which brought the dinner some inches off the table, Cheetham brought us out into open water. Mount Nansen rose sheer and massive ahead of us with a table-top, and at 3am on January 26 we were passing the dark brown granite headland of the northern foothills. We were soon made fast to a stretch of some five hundred yards of thick sea-ice, upon which the wind had not left a particle of snow, and before us the foothills formed that opening which Campbell had well named Hell's Gate. I wish I had seen that igloo, with its black and blubber and beastliness. Those who saw it came back with faces of amazement and admiration. We left a depot at the head of the bay marked with a bamboo and a flag, and then we turned homewards, counting the weeks and days, and then the hours. In the early hours of January 27th we left the pack. On January 29th we were off Cape Adair. Head sea and wind and fog, very ticklish work, groping along, hardly seeing the ship's length. Then it lifts, and there is a fair horizon. Everybody pretty seasick, including most of the seamen from Cape Evans, all of us feeling rotten. Very thick that night, and difficult going. At midday, latitude 69 degrees, 50 minutes south, a partial clearance showed a berg right ahead. By night it was blowing a full gale, and it was not too easy to keep in our bunks. Our object was now to make east, in order to allow for the westerlies later on. We passed a very large number of bergs, varied every now and then by growlers. On February 1st, latitude 64 degrees 15 minutes south, 
and longitude 159 degrees 15 minutes east, we coasted along one side of a berg which was 21 geographical miles long, the only other side of which we got a good view stretched away until lost below the horizon. In latitude 62 degrees 10 minutes south and longitude 158 degrees 15 minutes east, we had a real bad day, head wind from early morning, and simply crowds of bergs all round. At 8 a.m. we had to wedge in between a berg and a long line of pack before we could find a way through. Then thick fog came down. At 9.45 a.m. I went out of the wardroom door and almost knocked my head against a great berg which was just not touching the ship on the starboard side. There was a heavy cross-swell and the sea sounded cold as it dashed against the ice. After crossing the deck it was just possible to see in the fog that there was a great barrier berg just away on the port side. We groped around the starboard berg to find others beyond. Our friend on the opposite side was continuous and apparently without end. It was soon clear that we were in a narrow alleyway between one very large berg and a number of others. It took an hour and a quarter of groping to leave the big berg behind. At 4pm, six hours later, we were still just feeling our way along, and we had hopes of being out of the ice in this latitude. The Terranova is a wood bark, built in 1884 by A. Stevens and Sons, Dundee. Tonnage 764 gross and 400 net. Measuring 187 feet by 31 feet by 19 feet. Compound engines with two cylinders of 140 nominal horsepower, registered at St. John's, Newfoundland. She is therefore not by any means small as polar ships go, but Pennell and his men worked her short-handed with bergs and growlers all around them, generally with a big sea running and often in darkness or fog. On this occasion we were spared many of the most ordinary dangers. It was summer. Our voyage was an easy one. There was twilight most of the night. There were plenty of men on board and heaps of coal. Imagine then what kind of time Pennell and his ship's company had in late autumn, after remaining in the south until only a bare ration of coal was left for steaming, until the sea was freezing round them, and propeller brought up dead as they tried to force their way through it. Pennell was a very sober person in his statements, yet he described the gale through which the Terranova passed on her way to New Zealand in March 1912 as seeming to blow the ship from the top of one wave to the top of the next, and the nights were dark and the bergs were all around them. They never tried to lay a meal in those days, they just ate what they could hold in their hands. He confessed to me that one hour he did begin to wonder what was going to happen next. Others told me that he seemed to enjoy every minute of it. Owing to press contracts and the necessity of preventing leakage of news, the Terranova had to remain at sea for twenty-four hours after a cable had been sent to England. Also it was of the first importance that the relatives should be informed of the facts before the newspapers published them. And so at 2.30 a.m. on February 10th we crept like a phantom ship into the little harbour of Oamaru on the east coast of New Zealand. With what mixed feelings we smelt the old familiar woods and grassy slopes and saw the shadowy outlines of human homes. With untiring persistence the little lighthouse blinked out the message What ship's that? What ship's that? They were obviously puzzled and disturbed at getting no answer. A boat was lowered, and Pennell and Atkinson were rowed ashore and landed. The seamen had strict orders to answer no questions. After a little the boat returned, and Crean announced, We was chased, sir, but they got nothing out of us. We put out to sea. When morning broke we could see the land in the distance, greenness, trees, every now and then a cottage. We began to feel impatient. We unpacked the shore-going clothes with their creases three years old, 
which had been sent out from home, tried them on, and they felt unpleasantly tight. We put on our boots, and they were positive agony. We shaved off our beards. There was a hiatus. There was nothing to do but sail up and down the coast, and, if possible, avoid coastwise craft. In the evening the little ship, which runs daily from Akaroa to Littleton, put out to sea on her way and ranged close alongside. "'Are all well? Where's Captain Scott? Did you reach the pole?' Rather unsatisfactory answers, and away they went. Our first glimpse, however, of civilised life. At dawn the next morning, with white ensign at half-mast, we crept through Littleton Heads. Always we looked for trees, people and houses. How different it was from the day we left, and yet how much the same, as though we had dreamed some horrible nightmare, and could scarcely believe we were not dreaming still. The harbour-master came out in the tug, and with him Atkinson and Pennell. "'Come down here a minute,' said Atkinson to me, and, "'It's made a tremendous impression. I had no idea it would make so much,' he said. And indeed we had been too long away, and the whole thing was so personal to us, and our perceptions had been blunted, we never realised. We landed to find the Empire, almost the civilised world, in mourning. It was as though they had lost great friends. To a sensitive pre-war world the knowledge of these men's deaths came as a great shock, and now, although the world has almost lost the sense of tragedy, it appeals to their pity and their pride. The disaster may well be the first thing which Scott's name recalls to your mind, as though an event occurred in the life of Columbus, which caused you to forget that he discovered America. But Scott's reputation was not founded upon the conquest of the South Pole. He came to a new continent, found out how to travel there, and gave knowledge of it to the world. He discovered the Antarctic, and founded a school. He is the last of the great geographical explorers. It is useless to try and light a fire when everything has been burned, and he is probably the last old-fashioned polar explorer, for as I believe the future of such exploration is in the air, but not yet. And he was strong, we never realised until we found him lying there dead, how strong, mentally and physically, that man was. In both his polar expeditions he was helped, to an extent which will never be appreciated, by Wilson. In the last expedition, by Bowers. I believe that there has never been a finer sledge-party than these three men, who combined in themselves initiative, endurance, and high ideals to an extraordinary degree. And they could organise, they did organise the polar journey, and their organisations seemed to have failed. Did it fail? Scott said no. The causes of this disaster are not due to faulty organisation, but to misfortune in all risks which had to be undertaken. Nine times out of ten, says the meteorologist, he would have come through, but he struck the tenth. We took risks, we knew we took them, things have come out against us, and therefore we have no cause for complaint. No better epitaph has been written. He decided to use the only route towards the pole of which the world had any knowledge, and that is to go up the Beardmore Glacier, then the only discovered way up through the mountains which divide the polar plateau from the great ice barrier. Probably it is the only possible passage for those who travel from McMurdo Sound. The alternative was to winter on the barrier, as Amundsen did, so many hundred miles away from the coastline, that in travelling south the chaos caused in the ice plain by the Beardmore in its outward flow would be avoided. To do so meant the abandonment of a great part of the scientific programme, and Scott was not a man to go south just to reach the Pole. Amundsen knew that Scott was going to McMurdo Sound when he decided to winter in the Bay of Wales, otherwise he might have gone to McMurdo Sound. Probably no man would have refused the knowledge which had already been gained. I have said 
that there are those who say that Scott should have relied on ski and dogs. If you read Shackleton's account of his discovery and passage of the Beardmore Glacier, you will not be prejudiced in favour of dogs. And, as a matter of fact, though we found a much better way up than Shackleton, I do not believe it possible to take dogs up and down, and over the ice disturbances, at the junction with the plateau, unless there is ample time to survey a route, if then. Dogs could certainly have come up as far as this, I heard Scott say somewhere under the cloudmaker, approximately halfway up the glacier. But the best thing you could do with dogs in pressure, such as we all experienced on our way down, would be to drop them into the nearest chasm. If you can avoid such messes, well and good. If not, you must not rely on dogs, and the people who talk of these things have no knowledge. If Scott was going up the Beardmore, he was probably right not to take dogs. Actually, he relied on ponies, to the foot of the glacier, and man-haulage on from that point. Because he relied on ponies, he was not able to start before November. The experience of the depot journey showed that ponies could not stand the weather conditions before that date, but he could have started earlier if he had taken dogs in place of ponies to the foot of the glacier. This would have gained him a few days in his race against the autumn conditions when returning. Such tragedies inevitably raise the question, is it worth it? What is worth what? Is life worth risking for a feat or losing for your country? To face a thing because it was a feat and only a feat was not very attractive to Scott. It had to contain an additional object, knowledge. A feat had even less attraction for Wilson, and it is a most noteworthy thing in the diaries which are contained in this book that he made no comment when he found that the Norwegians were first at the Pole. It is as though he felt it did not really matter, as indeed it probably did not. It is most desirable that someone should tackle these and kindred questions about polar life. There is a wealth of matter in polar psychology. There are unique factors here, especially the complete isolation and four months darkness every year. Even in Mesopotamia a long-suffering nation insisted at last that adequate arrangements must be made to nurse and evacuate the sick and wounded. But at the poles a man must make up his mind that he may be rotting of scurvy, as Evans was, or living for ten months on half rations of seal and full rations of ptomaine poisoning, as Campbell and his men were. But no help can reach him from the outside world for a year, if then. There is no chance of a cushy wound. If you break your leg on the Beardmore, you must consider the most expedient way of committing suicide, both for your own sake and that of your companions. Both sexually and socially, the polar explorer must make up his mind to be starved. To what extent can hard work, or what may be called dramatic imagination, provide a substitute? Compare our thoughts on the march, our food dreams at night, the primitive way in which the loss of a crumb of biscuit may give a lasting sense of grievance. Night after night I brought big buns and chocolate at a stall on the island platform at Hatfield Station, but always woke before I got a mouthful to my lips. Some companions who were not so highly strung were more fortunate, and ate their phantom meals. And the darkness, accompanied it may be almost continually by howling blizzards, which prevent you seeing your hand before your face. Life in such surroundings is both mentally and physically cramped. Open-air exercise is restricted, and in blizzards quite impossible and you realise how much you lose by your inability to see the world around you when you are out of doors. I am told that when confronted by a lunatic, or one who under the influence of some great grief or shock contemplates suicide, you should take that man out of doors and walk him about. Nature will do the rest. To normal people like ourselves, living under abnormal circumstances, nature could do much to lift our thoughts out of the rut of everyday affairs, but she loses much of her healing power when she cannot be seen but only felt. 
and when that feeling is intensely uncomfortable. Somehow in judging polar life you must discount compulsory endurance, and find out what a man can shirk, remembering always that it is a sledging life which is the hardest test. It is because it is so much easier to shirk in civilization that it is difficult to get a standard of what your average man can do. It does not really matter much whether your man whose work lies in or round the hut shirks, a bit or not, just as it does not matter much in civilization. It is just rather a waste of opportunity. But there's precious little shirking in barrier sledging. A week finds most of us out. There are many questions which ought to be studied. The effect upon men of going from heat to cold, such as Bowers coming to us from the Persian Gulf, or vice versa of Simpson, returning from the Antarctic to India, differences of dry and damp cold, what is a comfortable temperature in the Antarctic, and what is it compared to a comfortable temperature in England, the question of women in these temperatures. The man with the nerves goes farthest. What is the ratio between nervous and physical energy? What is vitality? Why do some things terrify you at one time and not at others? What is this early morning courage? What is the influence of imagination? How far can a man draw on his capital? Whence came Bower's great heat supply? And my own white beard? And X's blue eyes, for he started from England with brown ones, and his mother refused to own him when he came back? Growth and colour change in hair and skin. There are many reasons which send men to the poles, and the intellectual force uses them all. But the desire for knowledge, for its own sake, is the one which really counts, and there is no field for the collection of knowledge which at the present time can be compared to the Antarctic. Exploration is the physical expression of the intellectual passion. And I tell you, if you have the desire for knowledge and the power to give it physical expression, go out and explore. If you are a brave man, you will do nothing. If you are fearful, you may do much, for none but cowards have need to prove their bravery. Some will tell you that you are mad, and nearly all will say, What is the use? For we are a nation of shopkeepers, and no shopkeeper will look at research which does not promise him a financial return within a year. And so you will sledge nearly alone, but those with whom you sledge will not be shopkeepers. That is worth a good deal. If you march your winter journeys, you will have your reward, so long as all you want is a penguin's egg. End of chapter 19, part 4 Recording by Kevin Green End of The Worst Journey in the World, Volume 2 By Apsley Cherry Garrard